This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching from Cameron Silsby is part three in our annual Advent series, The Long Winter Breaks. Growing up, uh, Christmas was a mixed experience, and I think that's not abnormal. Uh, For many people, it can be loaded with joy and grief and warmth and pain. For me, it was mixed with richness and embarrassment. So let me explain. Uh, I I grew up poor, like really poor, Uh, like not enough food on the table poor. Uh, I liked Christmas, but I also knew that it was a time to be reminded that my family had very little and my friends had a lot. Usually me and my sisters would each get kind of like one big present from my mom, probably something that cost around 20 to $25, and then two smaller presents that were picked out by my siblings. And really that's pretty wealthy by global standards. But see, uh, here's the problem. My grandma paid for me and my sisters to go to private school. Uh, where almost all the families were many income brackets above ours. So, within the confines of our home, I was fairly content with my Christmas haul, but I secretly dreaded going back to school after Christmas break. There at school, friends would list out all the presents they would receive. I would list out my three, and my friends would like wait for the list to continue. And I'd say something like, oh, uh, and lots of candy in my stocking too. Uh, My friends would then list the hundreds, or I would guess even up to $1,000 worth of gifts that that they'd received. And thankfully, uh, kids at my school were, were actually pretty nice. They didn't uh, tease or go out of their way to make me feel bad for being poor, but it was very, very obvious. So presents weren't my thing at Christmas time. Food was. There were days growing up when we didn't have enough food to eat. My sisters and I would have to kind of compete over portion sizes and, and hide snacks. Well, my sisters hid the snacks. I just got really good at finding their snacks and getting into them. Um, but Christmas was a day where the meal was like rich and filling and there was more than enough food for everyone to eat their fill. There's one holiday meal we ate that I can almost taste to this day. Uh, my mom did a, a good job with it, seeing as you know, we were a vegetarian in a day and age when there wasn't a lot of good or affordable options, but she got creative with, with our uh, Christmas meal, and it was uh, delicious. So l- let me tell you about it for a second. Uh, my mom started with a tube of veggie turkey meat, and here's a picture of it actually right here. There it is. That, that's what it started with. It looks good, huh? And uh, here's, here's a little fun fact for you. You're going to learn something tonight. When food comes in a tube like that, it's called a chub, right? So usually you see... <laughs> I, I thought this was common knowledge. I worked at a grocery store for over a decade. That's what you call it in a grocery store. Lots of people don't, didn't know, I guess. So that, that is a chub of meatless turkey. And now, so you see this a lot in grocery stores, that, like the, the processed ground meat kind of comes in chub form, and so does um, dog food. Dog food comes in chub form as well. You can decide where the veggie meatless turkey kind of sits on the equation of, is it closer to the processed meat or is it closer to the dog food? I don't know. But here's the thing. You're looking at the pinnacle of veggie meat circa about 1997. Like, nothing better than this. And uh, I would like to confess something. Uh, You see, I, I, uh, yeah, 
It's hard to say. I still eat it from time to time. Uh, so Chuck's used to sell it in their deli. I think they stopped this year. They were selling it all the years before that, but Chuck stopped selling it this year. Chuck, if you're listening, bring it back. Um, so I'd get some every holiday season, just a little bit from their, from their uh, service deli and eat it. It is the best chub of veggie meat you will ever eat. I guarantee it. Anyway, so she would slice up the veggie turkey along with the rings of pineapples, uh, along with rings of pineapples and peppers, and would bake it together in teriyaki sauce. It was so satisfying to eat. Lots of leftovers. You know, there was kind of like this richness and ease, a feeling of gratitude on Christmas that lingers to me to this day. For most people, I think, I would assume, a baked chub of veggie turkey doesn't fill them with gratitude. Uh, But, you know, I think with some context, you know, poverty, embarrassment, less than enough food, being a vegetarian when it was difficult, maybe it makes it a little, like, easier to understand why it would fill me with gratitude. So we are currently observing Advent as a church, a time to reflect and contemplate on the context of Jesus' birth. Often we want to immediately go to the joy and celebration and glad tidings, but Advent invites us to slow down and sit in the experience of waiting for the birth of the Messiah, waiting for good news, for glad tidings, for joy and celebration, waiting in the dark for light to appear. Go ahead and stand up as a sign of reverence and respect for the scriptures. I'm going to read Isaiah 65 verses 1 through 5 over us. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. So uh, part of the point of Advent is to get the context of the hope and peace and, and the incarnation, you know, all aspects of the birth of Jesus. So something I learned early on studying a dead language in seminary that is really no longer practical to know was that uh, context informs meaning. Sure, you can look at a particular like Koine Greek word from the New Testament and get a semantic range for the word, different definitions of what it could mean, but what it actually means comes from the surrounding context of the words preceding and following it. That's part of the reason why I find Advent meaningful to observe and why we as a church take the, few, the, the weeks leading up to Christmas to get our bearings and understand the context. It's why we're reading Isaiah 65 tonight. Isaiah was alive around probably 700 BC. He was an Israelite prophet speaking against the rebellion and injustice of the nation of Israel, warning of God's impending justice and judgment against them. Judgment took the form of a powerful pagan nation conquering Israel and forcibly dragging them off into a far distant foreign city. Utter destruction and ruin. 
And while we might squirm at the idea of God judging an entire nation, this is what Israel had signed up for. They made a covenant with God, an agreement to be his people, faithful to him and his way of life, and God promised to bless them, to be with them, and to love them. I said a covenantal love, kind of akin to a marriage. And there were consequences detailed in this covenant for unfaithfulness. God would remain faithful. He would be patient and extend forgiveness to Israel for unfaithfulness, but at some point, unfaithfulness would lead to the covenant being irrevocably broken, and when that happened, there would be serious consequences for Israel. And as it goes, Israel was unfaithful to God. For hundreds of years, God spent hundreds of years calling Israel back to faithfulness to him, back to his love and blessing. And sometimes they would respond, repent, and turn back for a bit. But inevitably, Israel would eventually choose once again to reject God and go their own way. Isaiah was sounding the alarm bells. Guys, this is it. The covenant relationship is in its death throes. Turn back now while there's at least a little bit of life left in this thing. And Israel didn't. It took a tragic, dark turn. This story of Israel is an archetype for the story of humanity and gives us part of the context for Christmas. It adds meaning and depth to the inevitable celebration of joy and peace and good tidings, meaning to the birth of Jesus. It just brings more meaning to it. And it's us. We're the context and we're the problem. And I think we can take this multiple directions. Um, You know, we could really harp on how we all suck. You know, depravity, yada, 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 we're the worst, scum, refuse, let's all have a group moment of self-hatred and loathing in the name of theology. Nothing sounds more fun than that. But ironically enough, I I think parading self-hatred and loathing around as the theological concept of depravity would be part of the problem. Self-hatred and conviction are not the same thing. Acknowledging depravity and wallowing in self-loathing are not the same thing. Hating ourselves would make sense if depravity was the only thing true about us. We are marred by sin. We willfully choose it. We are unable on our own to turn away from it. We are depraved. And we are made in the image of God with God's grace pouring out of our lives through things like our strengths and giftings. Depravity is true, but it's not the whole picture. So maybe the whole theology of depravity thing isn't where we're going to go tonight. Maybe instead, oh, we could point out how we are, uh, you know, fish swimming in the fishbowl of what we could call progress, you know, whether we like it or not. The air we breathe is the idea that everything should progress technology, new streaming services, better series to watch on new streaming services, new and better smartphones every year, amazing medical breakthroughs, more powerful military weapons to keep our enemies under our boot, new information and ways to ingest it to make us more intelligent, self-driving cars, a colony on Mars. We are amazing. Lay aside the antiquated spirituality that talks about sanctification, Progress is the new sanctification, and you can hold it in your hand. You can watch it on your TV. 
You can consume every available morsel into your very soul. That Jesus guy, uh, he was horrible at marketing. He was way too honest and frank about what following would cost him or cost you. It's going to cost you your very life. He, he was very clear on that. Our ide- ideology of progress is way smarter than that. Progress keeps you so distracted that you have no idea what it's costing you, your neighbor, or that stranger in a foreign country. It keeps you nice and comfortable and away from the toxic chemicals poisoning far-off places. You can let hundreds or even thousands of strangers know of your latest hot take and how enlightened you are uh, and how enlightened progress has made you. Or you can take beautiful pictures and show them off to everyone. Or the, the, the pictures of your perfect family that populate your feed. And as long as you keep doing that, you won't realize that you don't even know why you are alive, who you are, or what you're supposed to be doing. At least, you know, until the anxiety and depression, the panic attacks set in. But, you know, don't worry. There's always more shows to watch, new restaurants to check out, more pictures to take, more posts that could get more likes. You'll be fine. We could spend all night talking about this progress. Or we could list the worst atrocities that happen every single day all around the world. Uh, A child was abducted and killed. Bombs are raining down on families and children in Ukraine. And if the bombs don't get them, the cold logic of bombing an enemy's power grid during the deep freeze of winter will. Genocide, hate crimes, racism, the continued rise of violent political cults. It's horrific out there. We just can't figure out a way to stop hating and killing and neglecting each other. And we could sit here and say in our warm, friendly sanctuary that it's bad out there. We could grab some snacks after the gathering and chat with people and say, man, the world is just so messed up. And that's true. It's dark out there in the world. But that's not what I want us to spend our evening talking together about. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. It's us. It's you and me. We are the context. You and I are the problem. Not just here in this room, obviously, but every human being But we can see it clearly sitting in the room with each one of us. We do Advent, I think, a disservice when we merely abstract the problem of us into theology or ideology or distant events out there. It's this selfishness that squirms around in our hearts, calling constant attention to what we're not getting that we feel entitled to. It's the jealousy as we look around at other people's jobs, families, spouse, friends, talents, or vacations. Why do they get that when we only get this? It's the self-justifying unforgiveness that lingers in our hearts, the debt from the wrong that they did to me is just too big to let go of. It's only fair to define them by how they've wronged me. It's the manipulation of twisting everything around to put us and those we like in the best light, telling half-truths and making timely cutting comments to get that person to do what I want them to do. It's the deep, burning anger that is boiling underneath the facade of calm, 
the anger that we can't quite contain all the time that erupts on those around us, leaving them in pain. It's the avoidance that we find safety in. If, if we can only close our eyes and plug our ears and watch a show, then we won't have to be so anxious or so scared or so angry about that thing or that person or that relationship. It's the judgment we feel towards those who are screwing life up, the annoying ones, the off-putting ones. We can sit in judgment, shake our heads, and pat ourselves on the back that at least we're not like them. We know better. We are better. It's the consumerism we participate in. It's the porn addiction. It's having sex with the boyfriend or girlfriend in a desperate attempt to keep them interested. It's the drug addiction. It's the power we lust for and wield without consideration or compassion. It's the apathy, the pride, the bitterness. It's the secrets we hold that we would be horrified if the people sitting around us found out about. It's us. We're the context and we're the problem. It's not just dark out there. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. The context of the birth of Jesus is the darkness, the darkness of the world, the darkness of humanity, the seemingly incurable bent towards hatred and selfishness and destruction that infects every person. Advent reminds us of that context, of that experience, waiting in the dark for light. But when we take time to acknowledge the waiting in darkness and not hurrying past towards the joy and peace and good tidings, we are able to notice and resonate with just little subtleties in the story of Jesus' birth. In his account of the birth of Jesus, Luke writes this, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. When does the birth of Jesus happen? At night. Thank you, Dave. Wow. One person tracked with that verse, and it was Dave. Uh, I think you have a degree in something. Yeah, some Bible thing. Yeah, he should get it. Okay, okay. Josh didn't get it, though. He has a degree. Too. Uh, just, just joking. Yeah, yeah, at night. Yeah, the birth of Jesus happens at night in, in the darkness. Luke was recording history, but that doesn't mean there isn't significance to details like that. Jesus was born in darkness. Followers of Jesus down throughout history have made note of that darkness as not just a historical reality, but a spiritual reality of the world that Jesus was born into. The other element of this verse is the shepherds. And it's understandable that, you know, because of an Old Testament character like David, who was a shepherd before he became king of Israel, that we would assume shepherds are the good guys, the heroes, characters that maybe in Jesus' day would have been looked on with warmth and appreciation, a connection to Israel's glory days. But it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, in first century Israel, shepherds were often regarded as kind of suspicious characters. Their morals were questionable at best, probably akin to how our own society might view a homeless person living in a tent who does some odd jobs to make a little money here and there. Shepherds were not considered the cream of the crop, but were regarded as the dregs, people whose society set aside for contempt, people who were broken and stained. 
If Luke's story was happening right now, we would probably assume that angels would appear at the most prominent theological seminary to give our greatest scholars time to theologically interpret this mystery of incarnation, or maybe they would show up to the biggest, most influential megachurch with a social media superstar pastor to get the message out, or to the White House so that the policymakers could start strategizing on how to best respond to this new authority figure. Instead, it's as if the angel showed up at a group of tents erected under an overpass, declaring to those living on the margins of society that the good news was here. The shepherds are people we are invited to identify with as we wrap our minds around our own brokenness, the things in our lives that taint us, broken people living in darkness. But God doesn't abandon us to wallow in the darkness. Light does come. Isaiah continues further into chapter 65, and God says through him, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in no more. Darkness and waiting give, light, or give way to light and life. God poetically crafts a beautiful picture of what he'll do in response to the darkness and brokenness of humanity, of us. It's new creation. When this poetic prophecy was penned, Israel was most likely still in the clutches of a superpower, exiled from their homes in a foreign land that threatened to erode and eradicate their cultural identity. God made this promise, but it didn't happen right at that moment. It didn't immediately solve all of Israel's problems. It didn't come to their rescue or fix everything that was broken. Israel had to wait in darkness, in exile. But there was promise of light to come. It was in this context of waiting in the darkness that the events in Luke took place. So Luke describes the birth of Jesus as seen like this. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, that is the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The darkness is pierced by a light and a message. Good news, the angels call it. Great joy for everyone. A Messiah. God's king who will conquer the darkness and bring about God's kingdom. That is good news. That is light coming into darkness. Oh, and by, by the way, the this, this Savior, yeah, he's a baby. Oh, yeah, and you won't find him in a royal palace. You can go see him in a feeding trough. Maybe it's just me, but I, I don't know. That sounds kind of underwhelming, right? Like, it's pretty dark out there, and you're sending a baby, and he's lying in a feeding trough. Okay, God. I vividly remember uh, the Christmas season in, in, back in 2017. 
It was our first Christmas with our first kid, Posey. She was about, I don't know, nine months old or so. And for the first time in my life, I had this tangible experience of the frailty and helplessness of God in flesh and blood as a baby. And I would expect my reaction would be something along the lines of like awe or gratitude or something else, you know, warm and fuzzy like that. But instead, I was kind of disturbed that God would choose to become so helpless and fragile. God in flesh and blood, and he can't even feed himself. God in flesh and blood, and he had to have his first century diapers changed. God in flesh and blood, and he will die without constant care and nurture. And that's how God chose to meet the darkness. It took me a bit to get over that and to eventually marvel that God would identify with and experience the pinnacle of human helplessness as a newborn baby. God didn't answer the darkness by uh, coming and declaring a global martial law and enforcing holiness at the end of a sword. God didn't answer the darkness by appearing and teaching us the perfect ideology that would fix all of our brokenness. God didn't answer the darkness by showing up and drilling it into our heads how awful and worthless and depraved we are. God answered the darkness by being with us in it. He came as a baby. Advent reminds us that we're still waiting, not for a Messiah to be born, but for the Messiah to return and bring about new creation. We are still waiting in darkness. But now darkness isn't all there is. There's also light. And our place in the light has been secured. The angels were right. A baby being born really is good news. And one of my favorite themes in the scriptures is how the authors use the dichotomy of darkness and light to communicate profound realities. Texts like these I find really meaningful. In giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Or in Ephesians 5, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Or in John's uh, uh, biography of Jesus, he starts it out like this. In him, that is Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We live in this tension of being people of the light and yet dealing with our own personal darkness and the darkness of the world that we live in. You know, we're waiting for the Messiah to come back and to bring the words at the end of Isaiah 65 into fullness. And waiting in this tension isn't easy. Even though the darkness won't overcome us, it will still affect us at times. It will feel like it's seeping into our bones. We'll be shocked by how it spews out of us or how it pours out of those around us. Darkness is often uncomfortably close. How darkness has been forced upon us and how we participate and perpetuate it. Having to wait in darkness can shape us. It can plant seeds of bitterness. We can allow disappointment to grow into cynicism. We can protest at what others have done to us, what's been taken from us to the point that we refuse to acknowledge the light in ourselves and in 
our lives. We can settle into a fortress of accusation, firing off blame and condemnation for all those who wrong us and fall short, or our lives can reflect the light of the world. Theologian and priest Ronald Rollheiser puts it like this, suffering and humiliation find us all, and in full measure, but how we respond to them will determine both the level of our maturity and what kind of person we are. Suffering and humiliation will either soften our hearts or harden our souls. Advent can be a powerful reminder that waiting, painful waiting in darkness, is an unavoidable experience of being a follower of Jesus. And that waiting, that pain, shapes us for better or for worse. Rollheiser goes on to say this, Do we give ourselves over to bitterness or love? resentment or forgiveness, hardness of heart or softness of soul. We have to make that choice daily. Every time we find ourselves shamed, ignored, taken for granted, belittled, unjustly attacked, abused, or slandered, we stand between resentment and forgiveness, bitterness and love. Which of these we choose will determine both our maturity and our happiness? How is waiting in the darkness shaping you? I wonder if you feel the germinating seeds of deep forgiveness towards others, a growing and maturing love and warmth towards others, an instinct that's beginning to show itself to turn the other cheek when faced with being scorned or belittled or mocked. Or perhaps you feel more angry, more bitter, Disappointment and frustration shape your interior world, jealousy at what others have, a compassion-less hunger and and drive to grasp what you want, no matter how it dehumanizes and harms people around you, the conviction that you must get even with the person that knocked you down a peg. As you wait in the darkness, contemplate where you think you're headed. As the shepherds in the story, will we respond to the light, the good news message, and draw near in order to see our king who humbled himself, spending our lives choosing to become more humbled each day in his presence? Or will we hear the message of light and good news and turn our faces back into the cold dark of night, refusing the humility and humiliation that inevitably comes with kneeling before a humble king? Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.